Let's open our Bibles this morning to the 19th chapter of Luke. We are studying uh, this morning probably the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. And let's pick it up where Paul read for us earlier, Luke 19, verse 37 through 44. Then as he went now drawing nearer the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees came from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Oh, if you had only known, even especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and will level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. As we see the crowds in verse 37, it's called the multitudes. Um, greeting him, I'd like to turn over, before we go too far, to John 12 and explain why the crowds were that large. In John 12, verse 12, we have the same account of the triumphal entry, but it gives us a little bit of an explanation of why the crowds were so large. We read in verse 12, the next day a great multitude, again, great multitude, had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees, thus Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him and cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat in it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason, the people also went out to meet him, because they heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Turning back now to Luke 19, where we talk about, in verse 37, the multitudes. Well, just imagine. I mean, the word was out. Here was a man that many people knew. Uh, Bethany's only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. They were at the funeral. They knew Lazarus was dead for four days. And now he's alive. So what John tells us is because of that miracle, I mean, imagine a guy being dead, now he's alive, walking around. That's going to get around town really quick. So one of the reasons where we find that there was such a great multitude of people is because it's one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. And... Um, it is one of the reasons that the crowds here are actually so large. But let's, because this is a, a prophetic Bible study this morning, I don't want to miss the um, um, prophecy in verse 28 through 35. So let's go back to Luke 19. That deals uh, with this donkey that the Lord is going to be riding on. So verse 28 <clears throat> When he had said this, he went 
on ahead going up to Jerusalem. It came to pass when he came to near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that's called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, I want you guys to go into the village, and there you're going to find a colt. It's going to be tied up. Um, nobody's ever sat on him. Loose him, and I want you to bring him here. And if anybody says anything, like, what are you doing, then just say, well, the, the Lord has need of him. It had to be great just hanging with the Lord. He knows what's going to happen, before it's going to happen, and then when it happens, the disciples know exactly what to do. And so in verse 32, so they departed and found it just as the Lord has told them. But, but as they went to steal the donkey, <laughs> no, loose the donkey, the colt, the owner said to him, hey, what do you guys think you're doing? And he said, the Lord is in need of him. And, and a discussion. Well, I have inquiring minds. I wanted to know, how did he know that uh, uh, it's okay? The Lord has need of him. No explanation. They brought him to Jesus, and, and they threw their own garments on the colt, and, and they sat Jesus on him. In the first service, we have Jim Bodway here. I didn't pick on him on the first one. didn't want to embarrass him. I don't like embarrassing people too much from the pulpit. By the way, Bethany, did, was it okay with you and your husband after he gave his testimony? You guys are good? You guys are good? Okay. It was just a little baptism getting acquainted to the fellowship. <laughs> For you men who were there, you'll understand. Ask him later if you want to, want to know. <laughs> so we find that um, the other miracle that's going on here is this donkey's never been ridden. Okay. Um, Jim Bodway raises quarter horses. He used, to, he used to break them himself. He'd raise them. Some of the finest quarter horses in the country. And um, um, breaking horses is a big deal because they don't want to saddle on them. They don't want anybody sitting on them. That's why they have to be broken. So the Lord goes out of the way to tell us that this animal has, has never been sat on before. So we have several miracles but what I want you to see is that this is actually a prophecy, and you have to turn back to um, Zechariah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's one right in front of you in the pew, because I, I want to take a, a little bit of time. <clears throat> and we have, again, another good example. As we teach through the Bible, uh, we need to be aware that you can have in one verse to the next verse great gaps of time. And here's a classic example. The donkey being ridden is actually a prophecy. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just, having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. If they would have known their prophecy, and if they would have known Daniel will be shortly, they should have known that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But what I want to do is take you to verse 10. Because in verse 10, um, we have a gap of at least 2,000 years. And it says, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bull shall be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Well, surely that did not happen when Jesus came the first time. Well, the disciples thought it was going to happen. I mean, they were jockeying for position. Who's going to be prime minister and secretary of state and all that? They, they thought the Lord was bringing in the kingdom. And um, I point this out because it, it happened in, at men's prayer yesterday, not only in the Old Testament, but uh, we just started the book of Acts, and we were in 4, 5, and 6 yesterday. And in chapter 4, uh, we read this. Um, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported to all the chief priests and the elders 
had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, whom by the mouth of your servant David had said, and now they quote Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And when, you, when we're in Acts 4, in the column, it, it points us back to Psalm 1, saying that verses 1 and 2 is actually a fulfillment of the, of the leaders objecting to Jesus. However, by the time you read the whole rest of the psalm, it's clearly about Armageddon, where the, the nations that are raging are gathering themselves, and it says, he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold them in derision. And um, he says, son, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the rest of Psalm 2 is about the battle of Armageddon, but verses 1 and 2 is actually fulfilled. So, Dwight, what's your point? It can be in a sentence. It can be in two verses where you can have this amazing gap in time. Acts 4, 1 and 2 is fulfilled with Peter and John and the healing of um, uh, the paralytic man that couldn't walk. <laughs> and all of a sudden he went from not walking to leaping and jumping and and um, imagine never being able to walk. I'd, I'd be doing a little, <laughs> what do you want to call it, hopscotch myself. As people were recognizing this guy. Every day he's at the temple, and now he's running around. And um, we find, the, as we go through the scriptures, we find this often, this gap, and we want to be sensitive to it. All right, back to Luke 19. And... Um, we read now in verses 36 and 37. We know why the multitude is there. We see that the prophecy of the donkey has been fulfilled. They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if you have a cross-reference there, it should say Psalm 118, verse 26. I would like you to turn with me to Psalm 118, verse 36. As we study the Psalms, there's roughly five different kinds. There's what we call an acrostic psalm, and that is a psalm that uses each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, beginning with Elf, A. The next verse will be B, the next verse will be C, making your way through it. There's always just 22 verses. Then you have praise psalms, like Psalm 150. Make a joyful noise to the Lord with loud, clanging cymbals and instruments of 12 strings. And then you have psalms of great remorse and repentance. David's prayer after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He said, Lord, I'm all dried up inside. I can't sleep at night. My bones are weary. And it's a psalm of repentance. Well, Psalm 18 is none of those. Psalm 118 is a messianic prophetic psalm. I'll draw your attention to verse 22 where it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If you go to Luke 20, we're in Luke 19, but in Luke 20, Jesus actually quotes this verse to the scribes and the Pharisees who were rejecting him. And he's saying to them that Psalm 118 applies to them. Now they're going to get all bent out of shape because Jesus is going to tell him that Psalm 118 applies to him. So as we read this first part of it, um, the, the stone, the builders here would be the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. 
Then verse 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, the first thing I want to point out is um, sometimes you give a friend, uh, you know, just a card, just to bless them. And some of the cards out there actually say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and we'll be glad in it. But that's not really the context of that verse. The context of this is the day which the Lord has made is referring to a specific day when there would be a group, a multitude of people that would be quoting, save now, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Exactly what they were saying when Jesus was coming down, this is what they began to quote. So two things you want to notice here. This is the day, refers to a specific day, and what would be said on that specific day by a multitude of people. Now let's go back to Psalm, I mean to Luke chapter 19. And let's look at um, the reaction of this. Am I getting ahead of myself like I sometimes usually do? Yes, I am. I'll tell you what, instead of doing that, let's go to... um, Let's, let's go back to and dwell on this is the day and let's just develop that. And to do that, I need to have you turn to Daniel chapter 9. So Daniel chapter 9, Psalm 118 tells us a specific day. Daniel um, really lays it out in quite a bit of detail. Now, we just got done with, with Ezekiel. Um, we have Good Friday service this, um, this Friday at 1. Um, next week is Easter. Then we have the pastor's conference. Uh, but eventually, our next book on Sunday morning is going to be the book of Daniel. And we'll be teaching through Revelation on Wednesday evenings. But here in Daniel chapter 9, I'm not going to read the first 19 verses except I do want to read the first two verses. So Daniel 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord, given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now we get that. Why do we get that? Because we just got done with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What did they do their whole life? They had one message. You guys have gone too far. God's going to raise up the king of Babylon. You guys are going to go into captivity. You're going to be there for 70 years. And that's the book of Jeremiah. So what, what do we... No, now, Daniel was a student of Jeremiah. He says, I get it. I was reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah said that we're going to be in captivity for 70 years. As Daniel is writing these words down, he was the first to go, and now he's been there the complete duration of 70 years. And as far as he's concerned, Lord, I'm reading Jeremiah. I've been here for 70 years. Time to go home. But he had the understanding, and he knew what to do. What the people didn't do, they sinned instead of repented of their sin. So what does Daniel do from verse 3 to verse 19? He prays for them. He prays for the whole nation. And um, I'd encourage you to read the prayer. It builds to a crescendo. It's a broken-hearted prayer. Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity, done wickedly. We rebelled against your prophets. And the whole prayer is a beautiful prayer of repentance. But as you read it, you can actually feel the intensity of the prayer getting more intense. 
So that by the time you get to verse 19, there's explanation points after what he's praying. Verse 19 says, O Lord, hear, explanation point. O Lord, forgive, explanation point. O Lord, listen and act, explanation point. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, your city, your people, and the people that are called by your name. And I can just see Daniel totally pouring it out to the Lord when all of a sudden he's interrupted by the angel Gabriel in the middle of his prayer. So beginning in verse 20, he says, while I, while I was confessing my sin and speaking, the, the, it says man Gabriel. It's really one of three angels that are actually mentioned by name in the Bible. There's Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. Gabriel is always a messenger. Michael's the warrior. And he says, here that at the beginning, when you began to pray, I came and I flew swiftly, so this one has wings, <laughs> and he reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, oh, Daniel, I have come now to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication of the commandment to go, now I have come to tell you. Now, catch this. Before he gives him, Daniel only wants to know one thing. When do we get to go home? Seven years has come and gone. When can we go home, Lord? Before he gives them the information, he's going to give them a whole lot more than that when they're going to go back. But he tells us something that we got to be careful of also. And that is the reason we come here, yes, is to study God's word. And yes, to, to worship. But before the information, this is what Gabriel tells Daniel. Daniel, do you know that you're greatly beloved? You are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter. Before we get the information, like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, we can have the gift to move mountains. But if you, if you don't have love, it's nothing. You can die a martyr. But if it's not done because you, you love the Lord, it's for nothing. You can have the gift of tongues, and if it's not worship in the Lord, it's like a clanging bell and a tingling cymbal. It's nothing. So here, to me, is the most amazing prophecy in the Bible. But it should never be overshadowed by the fact that if you're here this morning and you need to know that God loves you, then know that God loves you. Good place for an amen. God loves you. Well, if you really knew me, he really does know you. <laughs> he knows you better than you know yourself. Peter found that out the hard way. Lord, you don't know me. These guys are going to flake out on you, but not me. I'm Rocky, remember? I'll never deny you. So what happened to Peter? Three times. The thing he thought he could never do, he did. We think we know ourselves. The Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. The Lord knew. He says, listen, Peter. Before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. It's exactly what happened. So before we get into this incredible prophecy, know that you're loved. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. But you are anyway. Because God is love. He loves you. And I say this often, but there's a reason. You see, there's only one of you. Um, in the first service, we have Philip. Um, and uh, he, he's in a wheelchair, has a beard. You'd recognize him that way. He's triplets. So um, I usually tell people, you're only one of a kind. I, I can't tell that to, to Philip. You know, there's two other ones just like him. <laughs> but you are unique and you're special. You have your own personality. Um, you have your own mannerisms, characteristics. That's why you're rare. You're one of a kind. Then after... Gabriel tells him that you're greatly beloved. He says, okay, now I want you to consider and understand the vision. So we have here a mathematical prophecy. And I'm going to read verses 24 and 25 and then come back to them. And remember, all Daniel really wants to know is when can we go home. But God has much more in here than Daniel could ever possibly dreamed or imagined. Verse 24 
Seventy weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to do six things, to finish a transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Here's the time frame. Let me walk you through it. The 70 weeks, the word week here in Hebrew is Shabua, or sometimes pronounced Shabuim. It simply means seven years, a week. And um, Jacob worked for Rachel for the same word there is for seven years in the Hebrew is that word Shabua. He worked for Rachel for seven years for a week. And so what we have here in verse 24 is 70 of these seven-year periods of time, or seven times 70, 490 years. And um, a lot of people get thrown off when they begin to mix up what God's going to do with Israel and what he's going to do with the church. And here's one of the places. We need to understand right here where it says, that the that I'm going to work with um, the Jewish people, verse 2, for your people and your city. So the prophecy is to who? The city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. We're not talking to church here. Matter of fact, the clock is going to stop after 69 years, and it still hasn't started yet for the 70th week. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So God gave the Jews, the most sophisticated calendar on earth. It is both a lunar and solar calendar. The Jewish calendar uses a 360-day lunar year and then adds a leap month on a specific year to accurately coincide with the solar cycle we use on our Julian calendar. The Bible uses 360-day years for prophecies, and expects us to add the appropriate leap months on schedule. So, the easiest way to unravel this prophecy is to first convert this prophecy into days. So, you add 7 plus 62, the 69 weeks in this prophecy. You multiply 69 weeks times 7 to get the total number of years, 483, And then you multiply the 483 years by 360 days, and that comes up with 173,880 days. So, the prophet Daniel, who lived 500 years before Jesus, wrote that from the day of the command to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls until the Messiah would be exactly 173 1,880 days. Now, verse 25 is important. Here we back to Daniel 9. Now Gabriel says to Daniel, Daniel, no one understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and two weeks, or in other words, 69 or 483 years, or um, 173,880 days, it says the streets will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, um, we find here the time period. So Daniel, the the question is, when did... When was the command given? And it should should also um, be noted that there had to be a starting point. So where's the starting point? Now I need to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Now Nehemiah is not in chronological order, so instead of going to the right on Daniel, you need to go back towards Chronicles. And um, the books right before it would be Ezra and Chronicles and then the the king. So in that area of the Bible, I'm going to give you a moment to get there. We're in Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah, they've already left Babylon, and now they're back in Jerusalem. 
but only 50,000 people go. They had, in 70 years, they had pretty much settled in to be like living in Babylon. I mean, it was beautiful. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon. And, um, you know, walls uh, 300 feet high, towers 450 feet high. It was an unbelievable place. So Nehemiah, he's a Jew, but he's the wine bearer for the king. The the palace is in Shushan. And um, he gets this report back from Jerusalem. Nobody's doing nothing. The city lays in ruins. Nobody's working on the temple. Everybody's bummed out. And Nehemiah is the type of guy where the cup is always half full. He's always in a joyful mood, but not today. So if you're looking at chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. And the king read his body language and picked up on it right away. And therefore the king said to him, uh, why is your face sad, Nehemiah? Are you sick today? Is there some sorrow of heart? Uh, and so the king is reading his body language and he's picking up that something's wrong with this guy. He's bummed out, he's sad. And he became afraid. Because if you're in the presence of the king, you're not there to bum him out. You're there to make sure that the wine is not poisoned and that you don't cause him any uh, sadness. And so he sees right through Jeremiah, and then he unloads to the king. He said to the king, may, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste and the gates are burned, with fire. And the king said to him, what do you want, Nehemiah? I know you're going somewhere with us. What do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This, here's one of those prayers that, like in Daniel, isn't 23 verses long. This is one of these quickies. Lord, help. <laughs> one of those kind. Everybody knows those, right? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said, so he's talking to the Lord And talking to the king, he says, well, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, well, then I ask you to send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king said to him, and the queen was sitting beside him, well, how long are you going to be gone? And are you going to return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him the time and furthermore, I said to the king, if, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judea. And also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall. This is important, what I just read, and the city wall. For the houses that I will occupy, and the king granted them according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. And now the king had set captains of the army and horsemen with him. He was protected. He had plenty of money. But more importantly, what we have here is this prophecy of the... the, uh, Messiah here is so incredibly precise. There were other orders that were given to rebuild the temple, like when they went back. But there was only one command to restore Jerusalem and its walls. And that happened to be here. And that happened to be on March 14th, 445 BC, as confirmed by modern archaeology. So we have here the starting point. Now, with that, we need to turn um, back to Daniel. So now we have the starting point. 
Verse 24 and 25 tells us the six things that God is going to do for who, again? City of Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Amen? All right. Then he tells us how much time it's going to take. He said, um, when you receive a command, after that command is given, we have the time frame. It'll be 400. 83 years after that, or 173,880 days, start counting. Because after that amount of time, the Messiah is going to come. And the streets will be built again, and the wall. This is the only command where it includes the wall. And that's why Daniel here is so specific. Even in troublesome times. I didn't get into this in the first service so much. But let me do a little sidetrack here and hope I find my way back. <laughs> there was two guys, Shambalat and Tobiah. Their whole goal was to throw water on Nehemiah's party. They did not want this done. They did everything in their power to stop the work of God from happening. But the Bible says when they got their act together, they did the whole thing in 52 days because the people had a mind to work. So you have a spiritual opposition going on here, Shambhalad and Tobiah. But you got Ezra, uh, Ezra, um, Zerubbabel, encouraging, teaching. And what we have here is a picture, uh, really, of the Christian Christian walk. And uh, we need the encouragement. And at the same time, there's always a Shambhalads and Tobiah's spiritual warfare to undo the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord here was the rebuilding of the temple and the wall. And once they were encouraged, they cracked it out in 52 days because the people's minds were changed um, and they were simply encouraged. So after that period of time, uh, says after the walls are rebuilt and after, uh, we'll, we'll go up to verse 26 now, it said, after this period of time of 62 weeks and seven, actually 69, it says the Messiah is going to be cut off. Now, this is incredible to me um, that is so clear. The word cut off there is a Hebrew word karat. It doesn't mean to kill. It doesn't mean to murder. It means to execute. So what this is literally saying here is that when, uh, when this time has come, that the Messiah is going to be executed. And then it says, but not for himself. Guys, there's the gospel. Jesus came and he died, but he didn't die for his sins because he had none. He died for my sins. He, had, he died for your sins. I asked my Jewish friends, I said, will you just, when it, when it comes to Jesus being the Messiah, I said, will you just do me a favor? You know, you're my friend, I'm your friend, you do me a favor, I'll do you a favor, okay? Will you simply just read Daniel chapter 9 at face value and just be honest with yourself and what it's saying? What does it say? Do the math. Anybody can do this. And you will find that there was only one person that was heralded on one particular day and who was, who was executed but not for himself. The other two guys that died on the cross, he deserved this, but not him. He's innocent. Pilate said so four times. I find no fault with this man. He's innocent. So it was not for himself. The next verse is very important in the light of some of the books that are out there today. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, this is yet future. The prince is a reference to the Antichrist. And the people that will come and destroy the city in 70 AD is going to be the Romans. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Um, There's a book out there called The Islamic Antichrist. A lot of people are reading it and buying it and buying into it. No, he's got to be Roman. The prince of the people to come, he's got to come from the revived Roman Empire. And having said that, I personally believe he's got to be Jewish because... Um, what Jew who's waiting for the Messiah is expecting a Gentile Messiah. No. He's a European, 
but I believe he's a Jewish European. And um, so verse, this next verse is important. It says, um, the end of it will be with a flood. They'll destroy the city until the end of the wars, desolations are determined. So in verse 26, what do we have? We have after in the 483 years, if you go back to verse 24, one of the things that is going to happen is he's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus dying, he reconciled me back to God. He reconciled you. And here Gabriel is telling Daniel, one of the things that's going to happen in this 400 period of time is make an end of sin to seal up all visions and prophecies. That hasn't happened yet. There's still prophecies that need to be fulfilled. That's because only 483 of these years have been fulfilled. Now, Remember earlier we talked about um, the gap. In verse 27, we have a gap of time, well, 1,500 years apart from this prophecy. Uh, Then he, in verse 27, he is a reference to the prince in verse 26 the Antichrist, then he will make a covenant with many for one week. Well, there's a, there's a 70th seven right there. And that's when we get into, uh, on Wednesday night, the book of Revelation. First, three chapters are about the church. And then chapter six through 19 is the tribulation period. And it goes into great detail that there's gonna be a covenant signed And in the middle of this peace accord, it's going to be broken, right in the middle. And that's what it talks about here. He, the Antichrist, will make a covenant, a peace treaty, for one seven-year period of time. I don't know if you remember it, but Yasser Arafat in Oslo, it's called the Oslo Peace Accord, made an agreement with Israel for seven years. Did he keep it? No. They broke it. So the Antichrist, when he comes, he's going to make a covenant for one year. But in the middle of the week, he brings an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wings of an abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined. Well, this is, this is, Jesus confirmed this. When the disciples said, Lord, tell us the signs, what's going to be like before you come back again. He says, okay. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, he's, he's talking future. He says, when you see that event take place, run. Because then there will be great tribulation such as never, ever been before. Neither before or after. And he says, unless I directly return to this planet, no flesh will be saved. Jesus is verifying Daniel. And the critics of the Bible are so upset with Daniel because it's so spot on accurate that they have to, they they say this, well, it had to be written after the fact. Then Daniel wrote it down. Well, we can prove that wrong many different ways because we have writings that are dated during this period of time. So what we have in verse 27 here is it's not an Islamic antichrist. He will come from the revived Roman Empire from the same group of people who are eventually going to destroy the temple. All right, now let's turn back to Luke 19. The donkey has been fulfilled. Psalm 118 has been fulfilled. And as people now are worshiping and quoting Psalm 118... The Pharisees, you got to understand Judaism. All they do is study the Old Testament, especially the Orthodox. They know their Bible. They know Psalm 118 can only refer to the Messiah. And so here's this multitude of people, and they're quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna, you're the Messiah, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees know what's going on. 
And they, verse 39 says, Teacher, rebuke your followers. They actually think that you're the Messiah. And I like the Lord's answer here to the Pharisees. He said, He says, I tell you that if they would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And I always like to say, Don't you wish just for a moment? Everybody would have shut up. One of the gals in the break room during services says, I know what the stones were saying. I said, what? Read Daniel chapter 9. <laughs> or Psalm 118. We go from this unbelievable appointed day. This was the day that um, Daniel talked about. Psalm 118 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. We go from that great joy to verse 41 to Jesus actually weeping. Only because he knows what's going to happen. So as he drew near, he saw the city and he began to cry. He began to weep over it. Jesus only wept twice in the Bible. Um, At Lazarus, with Mary and Martha, he, he wept. I don't know why. I don't know if he wept because of the lack of faith of Martha. Could be. Or it could be Jesus being fully God was also fully human. And when, you know, you have a friend who loses a brother, well, we're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So I don't know. Could have been one or the other. All I know we know the reason why he was weeping here. It says he weep, wept when he saw the city, saying, Oh, if you had only known, even especially this, your day. Now when we read your day, it should take on a completely deeper meaning to you. We're talking about a very specific day. The times that are made for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now Jesus makes a prophecy, and he says, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Dwight, are you saying that the reason that... that um, that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD is because they didn't know Jesus' timing of the first coming? That's exactly what the Bible says. And the clock stopped right there. 69 years went by. The clock has not started to tick yet. God owes Israel seven years. But it's interesting to me, that's the exact amount of years from Revelation 6 to 19, the Great Tribulation. What did Daniel 9.27 say? That um, in the middle of the week, he's going to break the peace treaty, the covenant that the Antichrist makes with them. Paul talks about it. Second Thessalonians 2. He says the man of sin is going to go into the temple. He's going to declare himself to be God. And um, so we know there's going to be a temple. And we know that he's going to break his peace treaty. And it's all laid out ahead of us. And it gives us the time of this. So this would have been April 6th, 32 AD, exactly 173, 880 days from the time that Nehemiah got the walking papers to go and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And we look at this, and it is just so mind-boggling that um, on the 10th day of Nisan, that's what it would be on their calendar, Palm Sunday, 32 AD, um, he comes in the name of the Lord, and we have Psalm 118 and Daniel being fulfilled which would have been the 10th of Nisan. Now, the prophecy that Jesus makes here wasn't fulfilled for another 38 years. Remember Daniel 9, verse 26, it says, and the people 
of the prince that will come, that will destroy the city? Well, they were the Romans. And we find that in 70 AD, 38 years after Jesus um, spoke this prophecy and was crucified, Jerusalem was besieged and brutally destroyed when Titus Vestasian, and you know, every time we go through the Bible, I'm always learning something that I've never seen before. It happened again this week. I've always said it was the 10th um, Roman legion. But upon my study this week, I found out it was more than that. I found out it was the 5th, the 10th, the 12th, and the 15th Roman legions that built a Roman siege around the city, starving and slaughtering over a million Jews, then tore down the temple stone by stone. Why? To retrieve the gold that had melted when Roman soldiers set the temple on fire, thus leaving not one stone upon the other. The gold melted down, crept into some of the cracks. They wanted all the gold, so they completely removed it all all down, just just as the Lord prophesied here on on Palm Sunday. And um, all because they didn't know the time of his coming. All right. The scripture tells us that there's two roles that the Messiah is going to fulfill. Number one, um, he'll be the Passover lamb um, this Friday. Um, We'll have a good Friday day service, and we'll remember the Passover. That Jesus, John the Baptist said, there he is, right there, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And they were picking out their Passover lamb. And uh, that was for us, for our sins. And, And the second Reason he came as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we're talking, looking at more as as Jews to save Jews from his enemies as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, I can't get into it, but that's all the, the latter part of the Book of Revelation, where the Jews that remain are at Petra in Jordan, and this is where the Lord returns. Isaiah talks about it. He says, "Who is this?" riding from Basra with his garments stained in blood. Well, Basra is Petra. And so he saves those Jews that have been supernaturally protected by the Lord. And basically what they say, remember the Lord says, you guys haven't received me now as Jews. And he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do the guys at Petra do? Well, they've been witnessed to by 144,000 Jews, by Moses and Elijah. They're saved. And they're in Petra, and they say, Lord, help. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's all it takes. The Lord shows up. And the battle of Armageddon takes place. End of issue. Seven years of the tribulation is over. The scripture also teaches us here this morning that the Messiah will return twice. The first time as a thief in the night for those who have endured in the faith, we call it the rapture. It'll happen suddenly to remove all the faithful believers from earth to shelter them from the great tribulation period. Now, the second time he comes is at the second coming. And that's Revelation 20. Then it says, every eye will see him with those who waited enduring in in faith. At the rapture, nobody sees him. We just go to be with him. At the second coming, he comes down to earth. And so now, what we see happening in the world today, and here's my heart for wanting to get across what we don't miss this Palm Sunday. And that is, They missed it the first time. They should have known. Jesus said, this happened because you didn't know the time. Now we're living in a time where the rapture of the church could literally happen any time. With everything that's going on in the the world right now, 
And I told the, the first service, um, I watched this stuff on TV, this uh, nerve agent gas, and watching these little babies. And I told the guys at Men's Prayer yesterday, I said, I'd like to be in a room five minutes with Assad. And then I'll repent later, Lord. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm um, proud of our president. He didn't go around seeking congressional approval to take that airport out. I wish he would have done a whole lot more. All that to say this, we've, we've seen Gaddafi go down, we've seen Saddam Hussein go down, and Assad is killing people just for the sake of power. Russia is firmly ticked off right now because we sent these 70 cruise missiles and took out their, their airport. I want to know why not more. What you're watching, gang, is signs of the times. The Bible calls them birth pains. And we don't want to make the mistake that the people in Jesus' time made because they should have known. People have gotten away from Bible prophecy. They've gotten away from teaching the Bible. If you simply teach the Bible, you have to teach Bible prophecy. And you'll know that's what's going on in the Middle East right now. It's extremely significant because it's setting the page for the Ezekiel 38 war. What's going to happen next could happen next week is Damascus is bye-bye because that's where Assad lives. And we're watching it building and building and building. Russia's ticked off now that we did this and their heels are dug in. And we're just watching these signs unfold. So here it is, Palm Sunday 2017. And is there going to be a Palm Sunday 2018? If you'd asked me, I'd say no. But I think I said that last year. <laughs> let's, let's face it, our God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. How many of you just, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you were saved in the last year? Well, if the Lord would have come last year, you'd be in a great tribulation right now. Instead of the Lord showing his mercy and You know, he's just so gracious. He's just holding off as long as he possibly can. But then he's going to say, that's it. You've gone too far. Church, come on home. And then literally all all hell will break loose. And when that happens, when the rapture happens, tick, tock, tick, tock. The clock, God promised Israel 490 years. The clock stopped when the Messiah was rejected. But that's God in his wisdom. Because for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in this period of time called the church age, where the gospel has gone out. Remember, the gospel was for the Jews. And it was mind-boggling that a Gentile could be saved. When Cornelius got saved, it blew their minds. Gentiles can get saved? Inconceivable. (laughs) Can't happen. But for the last 2,000 years, the Lord has been gathering a bride to himself. So as, as we wind this thing up this morning, what do we do with this? And my, my concern is, again, what the Lord tells us to do. I can tell you the date to the day that Jesus came the first time. I can tell you the, to the day that Jesus is going to come the second time. Yeah, you heard me right. And when we get to Daniel chapter 12, and we'll be there, I'll explain that all to you. But we know that day. What we don't know the day of, or the day or the hour, is when the rapture is going to take place. So let me read Matthew 24. Now I'll learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch is tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Talking about Israel. So when you see all these things that it is, know that it's near, even at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will no means pass till all these things be fulfilled. What generation? The generation that sees Israel blossom. That's what we've seen happen over the last seven years. From nothing to be the industrial only democracy in the Middle East and um, the producer of fourth largest producer of fruit. I could go on and on. The Lord says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, 
not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But then he gives us a clue about the rapture. He says, but as the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now these are rapture verses. For as it was in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Okay, so what was the lifestyle like that when um, Noah uh, entered the ark? Everybody's going around. Yesterday I went home and I cut the grass for the first time. It didn't need cutting. I just wanted to get rid of all the dead leaves. But I wasn't expecting the Lord to come yesterday. I was just doing my thing. Just like, you know, people are living everyday life. The point I'm trying to make is people were just living. They weren't heeding Noah's warning. For 120 years, he was building a boat out in the middle of nowhere and telling people to get ready for judgment. What judgment, Noah? Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? It had never rained before. This is the most crazy, absurd thing anybody had ever heard. How many converts did he have? Nada. Everybody blew him off because it sounded so crazy. Is there anything crazier than telling people that you're going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye? Metamorphosized. That's the word. It means transformed. And we're going to be gone in a moment just like that. Well, that sounds crazy to people. And that had it ever happened before? And the answer is yes, it has happened before. It happened to Enoch. He walked with God and was not. God took him. Happened to Elijah. He was taken up, visibly seen. Happened to Jesus. Taken up bodily into heaven. People who know their Bible should have no problem with the rapture. There has to be a rapture. Because the tribulation period is the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, God has not appointed us unto wrath. Why? Because all that wrath was taken on on Calvary's cross. What was meant for me was poured on him. And he gave me his righteousness, and, I, he, and I, he took my sin. I call it the great exchange. It goes on to say, and they did not know until the flood came and took them away, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, it will be everyday life as normal. The reason this is not second coming verses is when you read about the second coming, what does Jesus say? There's never been a time worse on planet Earth than this period of time. And unless I directly intervene and come back, nobody will live. Well, that doesn't sound like everyday life to me. No. Then two will be working at Walmart. One will be taken and the other one left. No, you've got to bring it up to the times a little bit, right? Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other one left. It's, it's Larry, from my generation, Larry wrote a song about this, about being left behind. And um, um, he's got a line that says, a man and wife is asleep in bed. She turns her head and he's gone. We should all been ready. And so here we are. We're seeing all these things happen. But it's going to be like in the days of Noah and in the days of Jesus when they weren't aware of the warnings. They didn't heed the word of God that was given for 120 years by Noah. They blew him off. Crazy old man talking about judgment. They weren't ready when Jesus came the first time. There were consequences. What were the consequences? We call it the dysphoria. And they were dispersed in all the world until the early 1900s and then a nation again in 48. And so as we see that there was consequences for not knowing the Lord's first coming, there will be consequences for those that will be left behind. And the consequences are, is going to be they're going to enter into the worst period of tragedy that the world has ever known. And what it should do for us is Matthew 24, verse 42, he just says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. 
It also says that we are to pray to be accounted worthy to escape the things that are coming on this planet. Now, I hope everybody here is saved. I like to say I won't even, not even cross in that street unless I know my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. I understand the consequences all too well. And uh, having said that, if everything's fine, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Paul said, the more he walked with the Lord, he understood just how unperfect he was. He called himself the chiefest of sinners. You see, that's what happens when you grow in the Lord. You realize just how good God is and how bad you are. Good place for an amen. Amen. So we, we understand the grace of God. But it should motivate us, guys. Redeem the time. Occupy till he comes. Do you know how many churches today actually have left teaching the Bible and give what I call sermonettes to Christianettes? They have no idea what we talked about here this morning. Bible prophecy? I don't know. It's kind of difficult to understand. I, I think it's symbolic. And that's what you'll get from a lot of places. I simply don't know. Well, I thank the Lord for Palm Sunday because it gives me an opportunity to share one of the most incredible, precise proof that this book right here is divinely inspired and everything is going to happen. Of the six things that God told Daniel that would happen would be the fulfillment of all prophecy. All prophecy hasn't been fulfilled. But as I look back and I check all this stuff out and it comes down being that precise, it gives me a whole lot of confidence that what he said is going to happen in the future. Ezekiel 38 war, stage is set, gang. And um, we just need to be about our father's business and be bold. I think that was the biggest prayer request yesterday, Ben's prayer. Lord, in times, just make me more bold to tell it like it is. Yeah, they're going to look at you like, no, like, <laughs> uh, you're crazy. And, okay, everybody's somebody's fool. Isn't there a song like that somewhere? So you can be a fool for Christ. And you will be. But you know what? There's going to be those that want to know. People know something's coming down. They just don't know what. And here God's word lays it out so precisely and so clearly that we should be able to articulate it to people in a very, very simple manner. Well, this is happening because of this, and this is happening because of that. It's all here. It's a triple dog dare. I mean, skip the, the double dog dare. It go right, right for the throat to the triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you to read Daniel chapter 9 with an open heart and mind. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. And thank you, Lord, that um, before you allowed Gabriel to lay out this incredible prophecy, that you reminded him how much you loved him. I pray for those that need that reminder this morning that you really do love them. And we're, we're grateful, Lord, for your grace. So, Lord, as we simply now commit the teaching of your word, we pray your spirit would continue to work in the hearts and lives of people who may not be saved. And I pray they realize that there's consequences that follow. And uh, so we give thanks on this Palm Sunday 2017, and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.